I had this really interesting conversation with Kristen Hare from the Pointer Institute, uh, which is, of course, part of today's podcast. And I asked her if she had an analogy to best describe what journalists do. I had one, and I posed it to her. She had another one, posed it to me, and it led to a really interesting conversation about what a journalist is supposed to be. And I don't think that either of us thought the other was wrong, but it's just a very uh, different view of the industry and a very different view of the role of journalists. And I would love to hear your thoughts. Maybe you have an analogy that best describes what a journalist is to a community, what a journalist is to this free society. You can share those, by the way, on the website, thereporterstudio.com, or anywhere you're listening to this podcast. But anyway, just think about that for a moment. Again, what is the best analogy to best describe what a journalist is and is supposed to be? I really would love to hear your thoughts on this. I got to say that in the 25 years I've been in this business, I've had the chance to witness how the news media landscape has dramatically shifted underneath our feet. And of course, it's all because of the internet. And it didn't happen right away because some of us who are old enough to remember the internet back in the day was really horrible. I mean, I got to tell you, the sound of a modem turning on was one of the worst sounds I'd ever heard. And still to this day, I can't stand the sound of it. But I think that when Wi-Fi showed up and when the internet matured to a certain point and we had faster downloads, you know, it took seconds to download a photo compared to a few minutes, I think that really changed the game. And then you had things like Craigslist. That showed up and it destroyed, it decimated the newspaper industry because, well, all of a sudden the classified ad section disappeared and that was a big moneymaker. Television took a hit. I mean, think about how today so many of us have streaming services. We don't have cable per se and that's taken a hit to a lot of big networks i mean over the last five six years espn has shrunk its newsroom a lot it's lost a lot the pandemic took its toll on a lot of news organizations over the last two years of covid 19 at the time of this taping lots of newsrooms have shut down but i don't want to make it sound like the sky is falling things are not as gloomy as you think Local news, for example, is going through a sort of renaissance. Public radio has actually been expanding. And where you lost a lot of newsrooms and they left a vacuum in, in its wake, a lot of other news organizations have come in to fill that space. So for this podcast, I wanted to talk with Kristen Hare. She's a faculty member at the Pointer Institute. And if you don't know about Pointer, that's a nonprofit that's dedicated to strengthening local news. I have a link, by the way, on the website. You can check it out at thereporterstudio.com. Kristen also, by the way, she tracks all the newsrooms that do shut down, which can be kind of depressing. But all the things that we talk about, and we'll discuss the future of journalism and how people view journalists, we started with one simple question. What is journalism anyway? love this question because it's, you know, compared to social media, compared to blogs, compared to pundits who are, you know, spouting off on TV, what makes journalism different? And I think what makes 
you know, the act of journalism different um, than a lot of, of other media that you might consume is we have a, a loosely agreed upon set of values and they include um, doing no harm, um, sharing what's happening, um, you know, giving a voice to um, people who often aren't heard, um, shining a light in dark places is a word that, a phrase that journalists like a lot. Um, and for me, you know, connecting and reconnecting our communities with each other. Um, there is a watchdog aspect to journalism that is at its core. That is, you know, we want to make sure that the, the people who work for us in the government are doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. And um, I think there's some connective tissue too, and, and this comes into local particularly, about what does it mean to live here and, and who are the people that uh, live in our community and what can we learn about each other so that we can be a stronger community. That All of those things I think are part of uh, healthy uh, journalism. How do you define and help people understand there's the national news, the international news, and there's your local news and each one is we yeah we're all journalists doing the same thing but the focus is different. I think that the best way I can describe it is um, in each instance the media are they're they're responsible to a different set of people and local journalists are responsible. We we report for and to people who live in a particular community, um, people who are from a particular community, people whose tax dollars are spent in a particular community. And that means we're at school board meetings. That means we're covering elections. That means we're at the high school basketball game to report on who won. Um, there is a, a deeper involvement in day-to-day -day life. Um, it's also really easy to take that for granted because so much feels national because we have social media platforms that um, have a tendency to discount local and, and sort of wipe out their uh, th that voice. Um, and because we have had now more than a decade of struggles with a business model based on you know people buying uh, advertising in a print paper or supporting um, you know television through advertisements, legacy media through a model that doesn't work anymore. So, um, I, but I think that the best distinction for me is who do you answer to? And in local media, you answer to the people in the community that you live in. I've watched over the last 25 years, I've been in the business, how the business has changed. Most of my career has been in radio, but I've watched my friends in newspapers and my friends in television and how, uh, you know, how their industries are, are all shifting. And when it comes to local coverage though, I don't know. I've heard different things. I mean, I've seen local newspapers that keep disappearing, but I've also heard in some places that local news is starting to make, uh, is having a renaissance. I, but what, what's happening to local news in general? And I'm sure that it, from community to community, there may be a different story. Yeah, that's the, that last thing that you said is really the key. I mean, both. Both things are happening. And, and both things have been happening for a while. Um, I would say that, to me, from my perspective... And my own experience since the Great Recession, local news and newspapers, legacy publications have been struggling. You know, there's been rounds of layoffs. At the same time we had the recession, though, we also had, um, you know, the advent of cell phones and the advent of the Internet and free information available easily. And so at the same time that the business model changed and we had uh, the economy crash. We also had user habits changing. And a lot of newsrooms that before then were the only source 
um, didn't adjust very well, didn't, you know, sort of failed to imagine that they could ever be replaced. Um, what's happened slowly and then in some cases, especially in the pandemic more quickly, has been just a lot of shrinking, um, closing. I counted more than 100 newsrooms that have closed during the pandemic. Um, you know, there are what we call news deserts where people have, you know, no or few options for information. Um, news donut holes where you might live outside in a suburban community, the city has coverage, but you don't. And ghost newspapers, which is, you know, uh, what used to be a, you know, 40, 50, 100 person newsroom maybe now has three people, corporate owners, people are making decisions in a community other than your own. And they're mostly re reprinting, you know, associated press or wire copy. Um, what's happened, though, I think largely has been there are fewer local media sources than there were when you began your career 25 years ago, and certainly when I began my career 18 years ago. And um, at the same time, again, particularly through the pandemic, we've seen some really great innovation that has recognized that media, in order to be um, meaningful, has to be built with the community and in it and from it and not just for it. And so there are, you know, I could list up a lot, but um, Outlier in Detroit is a great example of this. They use um, text messaging primarily to answer people's questions. Um, El Timpano does the same, takes the same uh, approach in California. Um, I'm excited about Berkeley side in Berkeley, California. Um, Richland Source in Mansfield, Ohio is a for-profit newsroom that is thriving right now and has found some smart ways to do so through um, advertising, membership, community support, and uh, merchandise. Um, it depends on your community and where you live, what sort of media is gonna fit. And that's different than what we've had for generations, which is, this is a newspaper. This is what it looks like. This is your public radio station. Here's the broadcast news. You know, Maybe here's an alt-weekly. What we're seeing now, I think, is a renaissance, and I'm excited about it um, because the journalists who are building it, unlike maybe post the Great Recession, have come to the understanding that what they're building primarily is a business. And if you're going to build a business, you have to have a business plan. You have to make money. And that that is an exciting, I think, and a good change. You've had the list that you're tracking of newsrooms that are disappearing. And I've been watching this list for a while. And it, I mean, it's just depressing. I just, I just keep thinking, my God, well, what's left? But I mean, so 100 newsrooms, are we talking mostly newspapers, weeklies, or even television, radio? What, what, I mean, what is that mostly? Mostly newspapers and weeklies, some magazines, some local magazines, lots of alt-weeklies. Yeah, mostly print. So have you seen these news deserts also, I'd imagine, are growing as well? I haven't mapped this and i don't i don't know that the group that maps this this is usually with um the the professor penny abernathy uh, who is now i think at northwestern um uh, or medill i haven't seen her latest mapping what i've found generally is that these yeah these are usually in smaller like they're weeklies right and so they're in more rural places um, oftentimes they have survived as long as they have because they, the people in those communities don't have great access to broadband. So in some cases, yeah, this is, this is the lifeblood. This is how you get information. And uh, the pandemic took a lot of, of those places down. You talk about business model. 
I wondered like what you've seen change. I'm not, I'm not in those accounting offices, so I don't know what those conversations are. I mean, look, you know, public radio obviously depends on some public dollars, but also donor dollars and underwriting as well. Um, I know that everything else is still, the television still advertising. Newspapers have really been hit hard, as you said, because that was such a big part of their uh, business model, and that's long gone. But what have you seen in innovations in business models? You said that you know journalists have had to become business people. They basically have to think like an entrepreneur. So there are several, and I would say that none of them, I think, work on their own. I think you have to have um, like a portfolio of approaches that you're going to take. Sorry to sound like a business person. The more I report on this, the more I feel like I should have gone to business school. So Let's do the yeah. stocks now. Here we yeah. go. <laughs> so they include um, membership pro- like programs, right? So the membership programs are different than what you have in public media. Public media is, you know, we'll have a drive. You know, I'm a member of, of um, my local public media right here in Tampa. Um, I, you know, they take money out of my bank account every month. I support their work. Um, that's almost more of a subscription model where it's a transaction membership though. The idea, and this work was sort of best documented by a group called membership puzzle project. Membership is we're going to have a relationship and, you know, what are the skills you can bring to us? What do you want to know about? What do you want to learn about? We're going to be in communication with you. We're going to find out what it is our community wants, and they're going to support us in a variety of ways, including through their time, their talents, and money if that's how they choose to do it. So membership is an exciting one and um, member supported newsrooms. I think particularly when you think about digital uh, for-profit and nonprofit, that there's some exciting, uh, exciting possibilities there because people are involved and want to be involved in um, what, what happens. Often membership is what one um, pundit calls you know, it, it lets you have an open garden. So um, whereas you think of subscriptions are a walled garden, right? And so you have to pay to get in. Membership is, um, I'm, I want to support this because I want everyone to have it. I think that that's important. Um, we have also seen an, an interesting trend of for-profit newsrooms, so newspapers included, uh, working with local philanthropy. Um, the good news is that there's a lot of money in a lot of communities. Um, often it's in community foundations. Uh, there are community organizations who who care about, you know, the financial health of that community, who care about the, um, the, the, the physical health of that community and want certain things to be covered. And so um, Richland Source in Mansfield, Ohio is a good example of this. They have had several... Um, projects funded by community organizations with very clear, you know, um, explanations that we're independent. They don't have anything to do with what we're covering. They don't get to look at it ahead of time. Here's, here's, you know, the coverage that, that we're going to focus on. Um, that's an exciting, uh, turn, you know, merchandise, I think is a place that could, that could go even more. We all live in a place that we're like, there is an identity, right? There's an identity living in Tampa Bay um, where I live. And if the Tampa Bay Times decided to sell Tampa Bay merchandise with our zip codes or mugs or t-shirts or something, I would definitely buy that. That would be something that would be important. And I think, you know, a revenue stream, live events, you know, 
RIP the last two years, but before the pandemic, live events were really popular. The Texas Tribune uh, has had a great amount of success having live events and that where people want to pay and come and either hear journalists, you know, talk to the public, um, the storytellers nights. These are basically um, live storytelling events from the uh, USA Today Network has also been six very successful it sounds like basically you you as you said you have to have the, a basket a portfolio of a lot of things it's, it's it's like any big company you're not just amazon started by selling books and now they sell everything uh <laughs> which I, maybe that's the way to go you're listening to the reporter studio i'm Luis hernandez thank you so much for listening just wanted to mention this is a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. In this podcast, we are talking with Kristen Hare, faculty member at the Pointer Institute. Again, that's a nonprofit in St. Petersburg, Florida, dedicated to strengthening local news. Now, what do you think about what she said? Should newsrooms consider expanding their offerings beyond just the news, sell other things in order to stay financially strong? I mean, when you think about it, some businesses have to expand beyond their main offerings in order to make more money, in order to stay a viable business. Don't forget that banks offer many services beyond just holding your money. Don't forget that airlines do more than just fly you from city to city. They've actually, in a way, become a bank on their own. So maybe the news industry has to break out of that shell and think about other offerings. I don't know. I want to hear your thoughts on that. We're going to get back to this conversation with Kristen here in a moment and talk about the future of journalism and what the younger generation is bringing to the table. But I just wanted to mention again that this is a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated, and they're coming out with another podcast late this spring. It's called Planet Earth 2072. We're very concerned because we don't see any restraining force on continued increase in temperature. It's still increasing. We're still getting more heat trapped into the oceans and sea level. No doubt about it. We're living in a warmer world. We're living in a melting world. As the polar ice melts, sea levels are going to rise and a lot of... What will Miami look like in 50 years? That's the question that's posed in the podcast, Planet Earth 2072. Because as we move further into the future, things are going to become more uncertain. I think they should be pretty ticked off. I mean, really, and they are. And once they understand it, they realize they can prepare in whatever field they want. Is Miami is compromised. There's a small population still living here on the high ground, on the ridges. We spoke with scientists and researchers, climate activists, and also Gen Zers. Set in stone, we're going to see two to three feet of sea level rise from the damage that we've already done, and I don't think we're prepared for it like we think we are. But it's not really individuals who need to wake up, it's politicians and corporations who need to wake up because politicians and corporations are contributing the most to this, uh, to climate. And I feel like more kids are gonna join the movement and more adults are also realizing the importance of it. And I think that, you know, maybe it's like 2050, but I feel that- Many of us won't be alive to see the day, but the youngest generation, Gen Z, they will. What sort of world awaits them? Tune in to Planet Earth 2072, coming out later this spring.
Again, that's the podcast, Planet Earth 2072. It'll be out late spring, early summer. You can go to the website, planetearth2072.com, and learn more about the project. And don't forget, you can find this podcast, The Reporter Studio, on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, and Podbean. And if you are listening, wherever you're listening, please subscribe, rate, and review. That would be much appreciated. Now let's get back to our conversation with Kristen Hare, faculty member at the Pointer Institute. What do you think people get wrong about journalists? And you said, you kind of said it earlier to me, is that, you know, we're not doing a good enough job telling our story. But, I mean, look, we get attacked by politicians all the time. That's nothing new. That goes back to the, the start of this of our nation. But right now, I think, I mean, any poll we pull shows that we're not seen very favorably. What are we doing wrong about selling ourselves here? First of all, I, we do, politicians often on both sides don't like us. And um, (laughs) I don't think it's our job to be popular. I don't think that Mm. you don't get into this profession because you want people to like you. Um, You do get into this profession because you want to help your community be better, because you want people to um, be better informed. It's not a popular job. You know, if, if we want to be popular, we can go and, you know, sell, you know, sliders and, <laughs> and beer. I mean, we should all go into selling, selling alcohol. That would probably make us more <laughs> popular. But so I'm okay with, I'm okay with, um, with the popularity bit. I think the place for concern is, um, distrust. And, and that is something we have seen growing a lot. Um, there's some great work being done, um, uh, by lots of organizations, including a group called trusting news that is working to make journalists change how they work and how they explain what they do instead of expecting the public to be literate about the media the way that we are, those of us who have to work in it. So some some examples are very simple. Um, if you look on most newsrooms websites, it's impossible to find a staff list or a way to contact them that's not an info at you know email address. If you want the public to contact you, why is your information so hard to find? You should at least have an email address, right? And a staff list. Um, I think we make the mistake often of assuming that if we put the word opinion on something, uh, or view or um, perspective that people are going to understand that like that's not actually journalism. This is someone giving a viewpoint. We we have all of these shortcuts that we think that make sense to us, uh, and we assume that the public understands it. I think we also uh, often don't spend enough time explaining publicly how we work. You know, how does off the record sourcing work? What does it mean when you say on background? Why are we choosing these words? What is the AP style book and why do we follow it? Why do we use courtesy titles? There's just a lot of ways that we work that make sense to us that uh, I live in a world. (laughs) I'm not married to a journalist. I don't have any journalists in my family. Um, My friends aren't journalists. And so I spend a lot of time listening to their assumptions. Um, We don't take money for what we do. We're paid for our work by our employers. We don't go someplace you know, to cover something and, and take money. We probably don't even take a cup of coffee and we don't explain our ethics and, and, and the ways that we ensure that we can be um, as unbiased as possible. And I think we also have made a mistake 
for a long time in um, assuming that we can be totally neutral when we're humans and we have a perspective and we come from places and we have experiences. And so we often try to hide um, what our own lived experiences are. And I think that also makes people not trust us because we're not robots. We we do come from someplace. Right. Yeah. Bias is just part of life. That's true. I don't know. Something you were saying triggered something in me. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm wondering if maybe we're like referees in a game. People don't like referees, but if you don't have a referee, you have chaos. And, and maybe that, I, I don't know. I was trying to figure out what's the best way to describe what we do. Right. I like that metaphor. Um, I, I think that some journalists are referees. I think more, more than ever, a lot of us are reference librarians. A lot of us are the people who are here to help you understand something. You know what happened, right? You saw the game. You saw the calls. Here's why. Here's what that player did. Here's the history. Here's what happened to the field before. I think that context piece is really the the major value that journalism now is able to offer is helping people understand not just what happened, but why. That's a good one. I like that. I like that. I noticed something else, uh, and I don't know if Pointer's looking into this, but I've seen the expansion of newsletters. And I mean, look, we have one at the station. I have to admit the station I work at, we have a newsletter comes out once a week and I, I subscribe to a few and some of them are really interesting and uh, I'll learn little tidbits of things that I may not get anywhere else. But I don't know, is that replacing local news? So it's good. I'm glad that you asked that. First of all, I write two newsletters and I write one obituaries gotcha. and the stories behind obituaries for the Tampa Bay times. And, um, Pointer has a bunch of newsletters. I also subscribe to a bunch of newsletters. I think what newsletters are now are they're the, you know, 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy who used to wake up at 2 a.m. and get the newspapers and deliver them to your door. Newsletters are now your newspaper deliverer, you know, your newsboy. And um, they're bringing the news to you. You're choosing to be there. You're opting in. That is, from a business perspective, a valuable relationship for a news organization because they understand you want to be there. They're not just, you know, sending information out into the void and hoping it hits a couple people on the way out. It is as more of a relationship. Um, we also know from, again, from a business and marketing perspective that newsletters are, if you think of um, your, your journey as a user, you know, from, uh, I don't know about this place at all to, I'm going to support them financially. Newsletters are at the top of the funnel that you want to be in and that we want to get people in. So that's where they start to get interested. So my my user journey, for instance, with the Washington Post was for years, I got their newsletters. And I, there's a newsletter they have uh, in the middle of the day with the, the top headlines that always gets me. And at some point after reading that newsletter, probably for several years, they had a great investigation and a little note at the bottom. If you like our work, you can support it. And I became a subscriber of the Washington Post. And that was because of a sustained relationship through their newsletters that did that. Um, that I don't know that it's replacing it. I did a story recently in my newsletter on um, the former editor of the Capital Gazette who had started uh, a newsletter through um, Meta's platform, Meta formerly Facebook's platform called Bulletin. We also have Substack and Axios and lots of other platforms. Um, and he said something that I think is probably the right, the right way to think about it. He views newsletters as a bridge between what was and what will be. We don't know what will be yet, but newsletters are a way to, for us to continue communicating information with people until whatever will be 
comes into fruition. In the time you spent at Pointer and working with journalists, uh, especially young journalists, what do you see? How people feel about getting into the field and is it promising for the future? It is. I actually run a fellowship program at Pointer with 57 young journalists and um, it actually, it's the best part of my job right now. It's, it's very hopeful. They're mostly Gen Z's. And they are not taking any crap off of anybody, which is, I think, a good thing for everyone, <laughs> including our industry. Um, they care deeply about doing this work and about having lives. And I think people uh, from at least my generation have often given up everything in order to be a journalist. I don't, that's not healthy. Your job doesn't love you back. Um, so I, there's a, somehow more balance and more recognition. They're coming from a place that's more rooted in their humanity than I think we've been allowed to as an industry before. Um, I'm very excited about it. They care deeply about doing this work and uh, are are devoted to doing it in new and interesting ways. They're questioning, you know, processes and um, traditions that I didn't know we could question personally. And I'm excited to see, I'm excited to work for them someday, frankly, but I'm excited to see what they're going to build and change with what, you know, we have built before them. Well, it sounds like maybe that's a conversation we need to have some Gen Zers and, and then the rest <laughs> of us old fogies talk about, talking about the future, you know, I, to finish up here talking about the future. And I, I mean, you know, it's not to predict so much, but just when you look at the trends, when you look at how things have been changing over the time you've been in the industry, what do you think, or what do you hope in the next 10 years we're going to see, you know, with journalism and where it's going? What I hope we're going to see is work that's rooted in a place from a place and for a place. Newsrooms that exist to work for a community that are employed by people from that community that look like that community. Newsroom has a huge, journalism has a huge um, diversity problem and, and it still does and it's been that way um, you know, forever. Um, the, we're at an interesting point right now where I think people have realized, particularly because of the pandemic, how vital information is, how much we need it, and how important it is um, to our actual survival. And so it's up to newsrooms to, and you know, existing uh, and those that don't yet exist to take the value that they've shown over the last two years and um, keep showing it and keep telling their stories and keep connecting with people in ways that really matter to their lives. Um, I'm hopeful that that's going to happen. And I think we're going to see it in a lot of different ways. So I won't put uh, my money on any pony in the race, but I might spread it out evenly amongst all of them and, and, and cheer for all of them. I'm, I'm excited for all of it. Oh, the future may be holograms and, and, and anything else, but I, I still, <laughs> I've always, I've always felt like there's is going to be need, a need for, for uh, journalists because there's a need for news. There's always going to be the town crier, the person who's got to, you know, yell out to everybody what's actually happening. So that's, I don't think we're going anywhere, but Kristen, thank you so much. I really appreciate having you in the reporter studio. Thanks so much. It's been really fun. So what do you think about that? Are journalists like referees in a game, sort of like the officials that have to make sure that all the players are following the rules? Just how we watch politicians and public figures to make sure they're following the law. Or are journalists more like reference librarians? People who are here to help you better understand what's already happened. 
I like both analogies, to be honest with you, but maybe there's another one that I'm missing. What do you think about those analogies? And maybe you've got a better one. I'd love to hear it. Share with me on the website or anywhere you're listening. Post your comments there. I'd love to hear what you think. What is the analogy that best describes what a journalist is and is supposed to be? Again, we've been talking with Kristen Hare, faculty member at the Pointer Institute. We have a link to her information and Pointer at thereporterstudio.com. Also, by the way, the two newsletters that she writes, we've got links to those as well. I'll be posting those on my LinkedIn and YouTube channels. Speaking of, by the way, if you want to watch these videos, my conversations with all of these folks, you can find it on the YouTube channel. Just look up the Reporter Studio. Don't forget again, we are on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, and Podbean. Please subscribe and hit the bell so you can get the notifications when the next episode is out. And again, please rate and review. We would truly appreciate it. And if you have a question, a comment, or even a criticism about journalists and reporters and the news media, post it on the website or post it wherever you're listening because I really want to help you understand what it is we do, what we're supposed to do, and maybe you can help us. We're not perfect. we got to get this right, but sometimes we need a little help. So, again, I can't wait to hear from you. Coming up next week on the podcast. One of the biggest faults that I give Spanish language local news is the exploitation of women um, in, in news. And so often, again, it's changing, but I remember coming up, Um, if you wanted to be, uh, if you were a woman and you wanted to break into the business, broadcast news locally, they would look for you to start in weather and they would sex it up, um, you know, from the way they use their hair to the, the clothing that they wore, um, really putting women in positions that were very uncomfortable Uh, We're going to talk with Hugo Balta. He is the owner and operator of Latin News Network. Thanks again for listening to The Reporter Studio, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. We'll talk again next week.